And the, the mirror that my soul looked into was not a pretty one. It did not bode well for me. And I really didn't talk about it to anybody. Nobody really knew. Nobody knew that at night I would go to bed at night and ask God just to go ahead and take me. And um, I told my husband one day, I think I need to see a counselor because I think I really want to die. And then I began to cry. I weep. And I felt like I cried so hard my face turned wrong side out. It was a lot. But it was the first time that I felt. And it was like all the feels came at once. And so he said, we have a lot of work to do, but the biggest job you're going to have to do is forgive. Have you ever had bitterness in your heart? And I'm not talking about anger at a restaurant because they brought your dinner out cold. I'm talking about deep-seated anger towards a person. Maybe this person has said something really ugly to you. Maybe this person has abused you emotionally or physically in some way. When someone mentions this person's name, does your blood boil? Or maybe you shrink inside yourself feeling shame and hurt. What if this person was to walk into the same room as you? Would your face contort in a negative way? Do you grind your teeth when you see this person? Does thinking about this person keep you up at night? Do you wish bad things for this person? Have you ever used the words, I hate, before this person's name? How can I forgive a person who has hurt me, and especially if this person hasn't asked for forgiveness? Is there any benefit to offering an abuser forgiveness? How can I let go of the unjustified hurt a person has thrown at me? These are the topics that I want to discuss with our guest today as she finishes her life change story with us. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, I want to encourage you to do so. I'm Eric Hutchinson, and this is the If Nothing Changes podcast. Previously on the last episode. I remember as a little girl, I slept with a Bible on my chest because I was afraid she was going to murder me in my sleep. I didn't think I was going to heaven, though, because my mother told me I wasn't, that I was that I was demonic. She would, when she would hit me and things like that, she would always rebuke the devil and try to cast out demons and things like that. I graduated from the children's home. They had a Christian school there. They still do. It's a wonderful place. How long did you stay there? Seven years. Seven years. Mm -hmm. So from 12 to, to 19. To 19. Mm -hmm. While I was at the children's home, my mother never came to visit. She lived two hours away. That was probably uh, one of the most painful things about being in care. The Lord put people strategically in my path while I was at that children's home. I began to really uh, grow in a relationship with the Lord that was very, very deep and, and wide. And I remember I had a house mom that was would always say, you need to find your friendship with Jesus. He needs to be your best friend because he will always be with you. There are going to be people that come and go in your life, and you need to know Jesus as your friend. Now the rest of Becky's story. So um, what? when did you exit mm -hmm. the, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you said you were 19. Sure. Was, at that yeah. point, you were probably too old. So to I be. graduated from high school. I was 18 when I graduated. Um, I turned 19 just a couple of months later. In that time, my foster mom was very adamant that I go to a Christian college. So I looked at Dallas Christian College, and that campus was super small. So I chose Dallas Christian College over Ozark Christian College. In other words, I chose Dallas, Texas over Joplin, Missouri. So when I went to college, um, 
And I really just needed a place to live. I didn't have any place to go. Um, I didn't have family that I wanted to live with. Um, and there, you know, there's so many pieces of my story that I've probably left out here, but there, I just didn't, I didn't want that life. Okay. And so I went to Dallas, uh, went to school, did, did okay for, for the, I did find the, the first few weeks I was there, but then I started realizing they were closing the, the dining hall or the cafeteria Friday, um, at breakfast, we had breakfast and then it was not opened again until Tuesday at breakfast. Well, I didn't have a job outside of that school nor any way to get to any place to eat. So I would not eat from Friday until Tuesday. And so, um, as a, you know, as a kid, my soul went right back into survival and, um, I quit eating. Uh, it was easier just to not eat and not be hungry than to be hungry every weekend, if that makes sense. Um, my husband only found out probably about five or six years ago that I, that that was the case. I just never told him I didn't, I didn't even think about telling him, right. Um, it just was my life and I didn't think anything of it. And so, um, so I went back into survival mode. I found out that the campus was closing at Christmas and I knew I couldn't go home, uh, to, to my foster family. Um, and there were a lot of reasons for that, but I couldn't go home uh, to my foster family. And so my husband and I, um, my boyfriend at the time, um, we, uh, were intimate during that time. Uh, and I got pregnant. And so we were married, um, w- at the end of the first semester of college. Wow. Yeah. We knew each other three months. Wow. We've been so married for this, 35 years. So was that after you found out you were pregnant yes. and you guys said, okay, we're yeah. going to get married. Yeah. And did you guys move in with yeah. each other yeah. and started started? Right. Did we you got, finish college or not? I did not finish college. My husband uh, went on to finish school, got his master's degree at John Brown University. And, um, and so getting married and being pregnant and being, you know, I came from a very uh, traumatic childhood. My husband also had a bit of a traumatic childhood. His dad um, uh, is a, a kidney transplant recipient. Um, there was a lot of times when they weren't sure his dad was going to make it. There were a lot, just a lot of trauma within that. Um, and some of his uh, just other childhood things. So we both brought uh, this not very great coping skills <laughs> to a marriage, terrible relationship skills. Um, because even though we've been married for 35 years, we've had to work really hard to stay married at times because of just the lack of understanding about how to manage a relationship. Um, and so we got married and within, uh, before, probably before she was five years old, uh, we moved 25 times. Wow. Yeah. 25? 25 to different states and everything. Um, some of that was working for the people that we were working for, and we just moved a lot. We were in Oklahoma for a while and Missouri for a while um, during that time, and then ended up in Mississippi and eventually in Texas. And so we were in Texas for several years uh, when our oldest daughter turned five years old. Um, but my husband and I, after we'd been married for a while, and not very long actually, um, became, decided we were going to go into childcare and be foster parents too. As we fostered, um, there was a point, uh, we moved to Oklahoma and actually went to work for the children's home that I grew up in. Oh, wow. So in 2000, we went to work for them from Texas. Um, but when our, when my husband and I, uh, began to work at this other, uh, the children's home I grew up in, 
I, the first year we were there, my father passed away, my biological dad, and I had not seen him since I was about 17. And uh, so my husband and our oldest daughter went to the funeral in Mina of my father. I know leading up to that, that my heart was in a terrible way. And I really didn't talk about it to anybody. Nobody really knew. Nobody knew that at night I would go to bed at night and ask God just to go ahead and take me. I just would think, I just don't want to wake up. I didn't, I, I wouldn't say I was suicidal. I wasn't planning anything, but I just didn't want to be alive. And I knew I was going to heaven. I trusted that. Um, and I just wanted to go ahead and go. I was ready. Um, I was extremely, extremely depressed and I didn't know or understand what was going on. Um, I, I was very angry. So I was either super funny and sarcastic or just like angry, just in a bad mood all the time. Um, and I, I would say that I had probably fits of rage, like probably every day where at some point I got mad about something and lost my mind. Sometimes it was around people. Sometimes it wasn't, it was never around my foster kids. I was real careful about my own children and the foster kids, but I still yelled all the time. Instead of just having conversations, I would just yell, um, which was just like my mother. And the, the mirror that my soul looked into was not a pretty one. It did not bode well for me. So I went to my father's funeral, and I remember sitting there um, in this little, it was a little tiny room, big, little, long, a narrow room. Um, in fact, his casket went from one side of the room to the other. It was very narrow. And we were sitting there, and I was like, I don't have any pictures of my father. I'm going to take a picture of him. And so I took a picture of him. Um, and then these, all these people started coming in that I didn't know, and it it dawned on me, these are all his stepchildren, so he, this is the woman he left my mother for. So I'm like, listen, <laughs> I had to leave. I was very angry. I went outside, and I was talking to the Lord about it, and I was just like, this is so stupid. Like, I guess he got it right with somebody because these people were wailing over him. And um, so I was like, Lord, I don't know what's happening in my heart, but I need you. I would love for you to give me an opportunity to share the gospel with these, these people that I really don't like. And I need your heart. I need you to help my heart be tender towards them. So I had brought my camera. We went to the graveside where the funeral was, and a pastor who did not know my father got up and said, I don't know who this man is. I don't know where he ended up. It doesn't matter at this point because where he is, there he is for eternity. And he began to share the gospel with my family, my step family. And I was blown away at how God did that. I was so thankful. I was so thankful I got to witness that at this side of heaven. And so I just walked around and took pictures, and um, we all went, we went home. And things just didn't settle well with me in my heart. It was just like I had opened Pandora's box and everything fell out on me. And I began to realize that I was in trouble. And I, I tried to talk to my husband about it, but I was so good at really sort of like hiding all of this, all my feelings, not, I didn't want to be needy. Um, I know that's my childhood. I know that that is the case. Um, so I went home. I was just like, this is not okay. I had a couple of foster kids living with us and our two daughters. And um, I told my husband one day, I think I need to see a counselor because I think I really want to die. And so I need some help. This is not a good place to be. So I went and talked to the counselor that was seeing most of our foster kids and he was shocked, first of all, um, that I was in this state 
And I said, I, you probably are going to need to move the kids out of my home. I understand because I'm feeling really bad. And um, he said, let's have a few sessions and then we'll determine that. And so um, the first two sessions with him, I just unloaded. He just asked me questions and I just unloaded really horrible things that happened in my childhood. And <clears throat> he cried the whole time. The first two sessions, he wept the whole time. And I thought, this poor man, he is so weak. He cannot handle my story. He can't handle my story. I'm too much for him. And the last, uh, the end of the last session, he said, do you realize you have spent this whole time, hour and a half session the first time, hour and a half session the second time, do you realize that you have spoken to me about your story as if you were telling me about somebody else's story? And then I began to cry. I weep. And I felt like I cried so hard my face turned wrong side out. It was a lot. But it was the first time that I felt, and it was like all the feels came at once. So I began to journey with this man, and the ultimate thing that he did, he was actually a drug addiction counselor. <laughs> he wasn't even a, he was a pastor. Wow. So, so basically I experienced pastoral counseling, and I've had wonderful therapists in my life. All, are, all have been believers. I believe the only healer of heart wounds is Jesus, and I wish everyone knew that because their life would be altered. Um, not that I don't believe that there are times and places and circumstances where medication is absolutely necessary, but for heart wounds and soul wounds, the only salve that can touch that, the healing salve, is the Holy Spirit. And so he began to walk me. I would go, I probably went for six months once a week. Um, my husband always knew how bad it was by how soft I spoke when I got home because I didn't want, I was so controlled I didn't want anyone to know that I was hurting. And so, um, but every week he would give me scripture. And so even though I had a Bible and I was in the word, I wasn't in the word. I didn't, because of uh, insecurities, I didn't really even know how to begin to study the word at large, right? The whole Bible. So he had me in the word every week. And I would say, uh, I would I would talk about my story he finally said, we're going to go down a path now that you're not going to like very much. Because one of the things he asked me, I remember on that last, the, the second session or third session I had with him was, where do you think all these people are that hurt you? And I remember saying, hopefully burning in hell. I hope they're all dead. And even now, I can't believe I would think that, that I would want somebody to be eternity, eternity in hell. That just, yeah, that would just be terrible. And so he said, we have a lot of work to do, but the biggest job you're going to have to do is forgive. Mm. And he said, and these people are not going to ask for your forgiveness, nor do they think they deserve it or need it or anything else, but you're going to have to forgive them. And actually the forgiveness has nothing to do with them and everything to do with you. And I have a dear friend who years ago said that when we, when we don't forgive someone, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Mm -hmm. And I think she was quoting somebody else, but I don't know who it was. The truth is, in my life, whether it was with my mother or when I was in the care of other people, there were times when men who were meant to protect me sexually abused me. Um, and it wasn't until my early 30s that I realized I needed to forgive them. Um, so I began to write people's names down and what they did to me in detail 
and um, and I would almost every night I would get in the bathtub because we had a bunch of kids and my husband wouldn't let him bother me when I was in the bath. Um, he, when I was using the restroom, that was a different story, but <laughs> he was so careful to protect that time. And I would get in the bathtub and I had just journaled all of the stuff about this one person that had hurt me many times men who should have been protecting me instead of touching my body and a mother who should have protected me instead of beating my body. And so I would journal and then I would get in the bathtub and I had a CD that I listened to that I still listen to the album sometimes that was Michael W. Smith worship. And I would just, I remember one song, change my heart. Oh God, make it ever true. Change my heart. Oh God, may I be like you. Um, I remember saying, God, I hate these people. I don't want to forgive them. I, I want them to die. I want them to hurt the way I'm hurting now. But I know that's not from you. I know that's the enemy in my heart, of my heart, who wants me to stay in bondage longer than I ever should. And I just began to say, God, I, I'm giving you my heart to change it and help me forgive this person. And physically, I don't think as a human I could forgive any of the people I wrote down on that list. I began to forgive people. I can't begin to tell you what it did for my life and my heart. And I remember there's a quote by Bishop T.D. Jakes that I love so much, and it says, when God restores you, he does so in such a way that suddenly you're walking in the light and you can't recall how dark your life has been. Wow. So after that journey, um, my mother had come to see me while I was working at the children's home. Again, she had never visited me while I was there. And she had said some things. We'd sit out on the front porch, and I remember watching buds on the trees turn to leaves. I'd never done that, never even paid attention, never thought it was a thing. It was so incredibly holy and sacred to do that. It was beautiful. Well, she went home. When, when she was sitting on my porch one day, though, I said, Mom, why do I not remember my birthdays? I thought I'd blocked them out. I, I thought we must have had like crazy violence on my birthday. You know, dad came home, whatever. Something was crazy. Why don't I, I remember one birthday with my mother and it was when I was five years old and my, my dad was home and he bought me a swing set. That's all I remember. I, I remember chocolate cake and watermelon that day. And I said, Mama, why don't I remember my birthday? And she looked at me, and she was almost like crazy looking at me. And she said, well, nobody ever did anything for my birthday, so why should I do anything for yours? It's only been in the last few years that I realized that her birthday is three days before mine. And so nobody, none of her children right. did anything for her birthday. Yeah. So she didn't do anything for my birthday. Yeah. And so I remember my my youngest of the two older sisters, her birthday was on the 14th of August and she was celebrated, but I never, I thought I just blocked it out. Well, I remember just going, Oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. It wasn't even like I was hurt by it. It was more like, Oh, okay. That makes sense. I can put that somewhere. I can register that somewhere in my brain. Um, she went home and a few weeks later she called me and she said, Rebecca, would you please tell Hayden that grandma is not doing anything for her birthday? And I was like, um, excuse me? And she said, would you just please tell her that grandma does not feel like doing anything for her birthday, so I'm not going to send her a card or anything this year? And I said, Mama, her birthday's not for two months. She said, I know. I just don't want to do anything for her birthday, so would you just tell her? And I said, Mom, 
uh, I'm not going to tell her. You have never done anything for her birthday. And as a matter of fact, you will never get to speak to her again. We're all done. I love you. Goodbye. I was so angry. I was so angry in that moment. And I went over and sat down on my couch, and I will never forget it in my life. I sat down on my couch. And you know when you're angry when somebody hurts you? You always start pulling from what they've done in the past to pile up even more offenses. And you can like, I am so mad and I have the right because of this, this, and this. And oh, and don't forget this, this, and this. I can't stand them. I'm so angry. And guess what? I couldn't pull one thing from the past because I had truly forgiven her. Mm. It was the most, it was truly a pivotal moment in my life because Forgiveness is one of the most, unforgiveness is one of the most damaging things we can do to ourselves. Forgiveness is the most freeing things we can ever do for ourselves. And forgiveness is holy and sacred, and it doesn't matter if you're a believer or not. It is holy and it is sacred. And God changes our hearts in ways that man cannot understand. No doctors or counselors can understand. And so I was so giddy over the fact that I didn't have anything to pull. I was shocked and awed by it. And I was standing up going in my living room going, are you kidding me right now, Lord? I actually forgave her for for real? He let me see if she would have never called me and done that mean thing. I would never know the redemption in that story and that freedom and that forgiveness. And so if, if people are listening and they are hurting most of the time we are hurting because of unforgiveness. Most of that physical pain, the trauma is there, the PTSD is there, but the bitterness and the hate and the anger is from unforgiveness. And so go talk to someone. Go talk to someone. I tell people that I am coaching or mentoring, write a timeline. When we write timelines, we get to see all the goodness of God throughout, and then they're sprinkled within that, things that are icky, things we want to forget, and things that need to be forgiven. And you got to have a counselor in the process. <laughs> you need Jesus for sure, but you also need somebody that's going to coach you through that Absolutely. who can help you a little bit. Um, so what you're describing in recovery is what we call inventory. Yes. So yes. you took an inventory of yes. your relationships yeah. and you wrote those down, yeah. which is healing in itself, yeah. but you wrote those down. And you forgave, and you yeah. finally came to the realization that you were drinking poison, yep. and it wasn't hurting the people that no. hurt you, it was hurting you. That's right. That's right. It was. Um, it still is incredible. I think one of the hardest things, even in the last few years, is I've had some relationships that were um, that did not end well with a handful of people. Um, I love those people. I still love those people. But in the process of that, I realized that I had not forgiven them. Um, and honestly, they probably need to forgive me for some things too. Um, but for me, I found myself in that place where there was a bitter seed in my heart. So if I saw their picture or heard their name, I was like, I'm telling you, that's a great way to put the, the, you know, the Holy Spirit on your pulse and really do a heart check is when you hear somebody's name and you feel anger or bitterness or resentment um, you almost want them harm. Mm. You want them to be hurting like you. That is a true sign that you've got. That's a person that you need to forgive. 
Wow, what an incredible yeah. thing. So yeah. I want you to, to describe to us a little bit about how you and your husband came to this incredible ministry that you're mm. doing. So I want you to describe um, what Saving Grace is okay. and tell us, you know, if you can, summarize kind of sure. what led you to that and, sure. and, and about that ministry. Yes. So um, my husband and I, when we were working at the children's home, this was uh, eight years or so after my father had died, um, I uh, just some things happened. We had some turnover at the children's home. We had a new director come in. Probably in 2006, we did not move from there until 2008, but in 2006, I was listening. I was just in a place where I was like, uh, I had a baby that was two years old. Um, but I remember uh, listening to a lot of lot of uh, times with the Lord in a bathtub, just, just being honest. Um, but I was listening to Point of Grace's uh, new album that came out that year, and um, one of the songs was a song called Saving Grace. And it talks about, it's all about saving grace and being Jesus to the one he came to save, okay? And so a lot of times when we think about people who aren't, uh, don't have a relationship with Jesus or won't darken the door, as they mentioned in that song, they won't darken the door of any church because what for? Uh, they've been judged and they've been hurt and they don't want to do that. Um, as I listened to the song, the Lord birthed, planted the seed, how, whatever you want to call it to do a transitional living program for kids aging out of foster care or children's homes. Um, I began to just research. There was nothing out there for transitional living for kids aging out. It was mostly for people with special needs, um, transitional living for that, criminals, um, that kind of thing. And so uh, when we moved to Northwest Arkansas, I already knew. I had a file on my computer that I called Rebecca's Hope. Um, and I would just put stuff in there. I would find a life skill thing that I thought was really good or whatever. I knew kind of what I wanted to do, but not fully. And so when we moved to Northwest Arkansas, Kent went to work for John Brown University. And when we moved to Northwest Arkansas, um, we, we moved here in 2008. It was in uh, June, I think, of 2008. The Lord allowed me a sabbatical. So he put my heart and soul to sleep. I didn't get involved in church. I didn't go, I mean, I went to church, but I didn't get involved with the women's ministry or Sunday school or anything like that. Um, in fact, my husband and I would go the first few months we were there and just sit in the back and cry. We were tired. We had, you know, had a lot of children in our home that were a lot of, um, you had to really control your own emotions because they were very emotional. And um, so I was, I just needed a sabbatical from full-time ministry. And God gave me one. Um, and I remember one night, uh, in, it was in October of 2008, I was like, Lord, when am I going to know this is over? And uh, our middle daughter is autistic, and we didn't know it at the time. And she had made uh, this little clay figure for me. Well, I was, she was, I was shooing her out the door and trying to go to bed, and she said, wait, Mom. And she comes over. She had made me this little clay figure that she called Courage, and it was a woman on her knees with her hand, face toward heaven her hands raised. And um, she said, Mom, and I was like, what, sweetheart? You need to go to bed. And she said, no, wait. Your, your courage is covered in cobwebs. You need to dust her off. And she turned around and walked out. And I was like, so then I got my Bible out, and I start reading everything about courage, and I knew it was time. I knew it was time for me to get back into the game and, and do something about this thing that God put in my heart. And we didn't know anybody in northwest Arkansas. So we took our first baby steps to start Saving Grace in January, February of 2009. 
And by November, we were ready to open fully funded. The building was completely furnished with brand new things. The only old things that were in that building were things we wanted to keep because they were cool. Everything else was brand new because this community of Northwest Arkansas surrounded us, showed up for girls they'd never even met, all in the name of doing something to change the outcome for these kids. That and it and that is a short story of it. And so we um, we opened. We were able to open in January um, 2010, and we've been fully funded by people. We have a few companies who give or. They come and do work so we don't have to pay for certain work to be done. Um, But we are almost fully funded by people. Um, We serve girls that are aging out of foster care or group homes or facing homelessness. Um, Some are from northwest Arkansas. Some are a little bit beyond, but not much farther. Most of our girls are local. Um, They come and live at a place where we provide. It's a home. Um, We no longer are in the convent space in Rogers, which we were there for several years. Now we're out at a farm in Centerton. So we've got about 50 acres. Um, We get about 150 applicants a a year. So our goal is to have a place for 50 girls to live. So if a... 18 to 25 year old girls listening. Mm-hmm. How does that, how do they get in touch with you? How sure. do they apply? Do you have sure. an email address or a phone mm-hmm. number? Mm-hmm. They can go to savinggracenwa.org. So that is saving grace, two words, NWA, like Northwest Arkansas.org, O-R-G. Um, click on live and it'll take you to the right page and you can fill it all out. It'll have a place to call or email or a form to fill out for more information. So last question. Mm-hmm. So someone's listening and maybe they had a similar, a similar mm-hmm. childhood and the bitterness mm-hmm. and resentment have mm-hmm. eaten them alive. Mm-hmm. And they say, I don't even want to forgive mm-hmm. my abusers. Mm-hmm. What would you say, what advice would you give to the person that has experienced those mm-hmm. bad things? They didn't mm-hmm. do anything wrong. Right. It was something that was, it was Done a crime them. against mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. You know, what would you say to them about forgiveness? Mm-hmm. One of the hardest things for me on that journey was when I realized that Jesus didn't just die for the sins that I've committed, but the sins that were done unto me. In fact, I got pretty janked up about that before him. I was not happy. Um, but I would say if you are in a situation where you know that your heart is bitter and you know that you feel angry all the time and you feel jaded all the time, praise God that you realize it. First of all, that is the first, that is the very first step. And so I would say to the people who don't, who are listening, that maybe you feel like you don't have any friends. Maybe you feel like a lot of people have abandoned you and you're alone and nobody wants to go to dinner or nobody wants to come over for Christmas or whatever. That's partly, that's where when we're in that bitter space, nobody wants to be around us because it gets on other people, you know. And so I would say owning it is the first step. That is the very first step. And then trusting God with it. Trust God. He already knows. Like he looked in my heart and went, girl, you got some bitterness up in there. (laughs) He already knew that. He is a gentle and loving father, and he wants us to forgive so we can have freedom, not because the other people deserve us to to be for, for us to forgive them. And so I would say, give it to the Lord. Be honest. He already knows. Confess what you feel out loud to him if you absolutely, I mean, that'd be the best. That's the, I think that is the best way to walk through forgiveness 
with someone and it doesn't need, they do not need to be involved. People do. And here's, here's another thing. Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same. Forgiveness does not need, does not mean at all that you need to go reconcile with those people. In fact, I would say none of the people that I had to forgive in that journey have I gone back and reconciled. I tried probably a little bit with my mother, but I cannot reconcile because there is no way that reconciliation will ever happen. She will only try to harm me. She will only try to harm my children. So I would say, if you know it, if you know that this is happening and your heart is hurting so deeply, confess that to the Lord. Allow the Lord to come in and change your heart and remember that reconciliation and forgiveness are not the same thing. Um, Allow somebody else along on this journey. Your heart can heal. Your heart can forgive. And it can go back to being, you can find joy. Amen. Truly joy. Amen. Becky, thanks so much for sharing the rest of your story with us. Hey, if you have unforgiveness in your heart and it's been eating you alive with bitterness and resentment, remember, it's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Holding on to unforgiveness will hurt you more than it hurts the other person. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Jesus wants to heal your hurt and help you move forward in your life. However, if nothing changes, nothing changes. See you next time.